it's time for another episode of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes. Here's your host, Terrence McCauley. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes, right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Today, my guest is I.S. Berry. She spent six years as an operations officer for the CIA, serving in wartime Baghdad and elsewhere. The Peacock and the Sparrow is her first novel. Thank you for being here, Alana. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. No, so why don't you tell us a little bit about The uh, Peacock and the Sparrow? So it's about um, an aging American spy caught in the crosswinds of the Arab Spring on the small island of Bahrain off the coast of Saudi Arabia. Um, and he gets ensnared in murder, consuming love, and an unpredictable revolution. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, it was sort of my way of processing my own experiences as a spy. Um, for me, it was a profession that was at times dark, where you're trying, you make decisions that affect people's lives in a world where there's no clear right and wrong or good and bad. Mm -hmm. And, um, and in my book, the uh, protagonist, Shane Collins, makes decisions that affect the course of the Arab Spring. And so in a way, it was sort of me on the page, kind of dealing right. with my own experiences of making decisions that had sometimes unintended consequences, certainly right. weighty consequences. Right. I can imagine. I, and I can't. And the one thing I cannot imagine, though, is surviving that uh, and living through that as an American. You must have had a really unique perspective on the events of that summer, didn't you? Yeah. So um, you're talking about the Arab Spring. Arab Spring. Yeah. 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 And so I actually and I was in Bahrain after I left the CIA. Um, so I was there to at beginning of 2012 to end of 2013. And it was really interesting. Um, and I think a lot of Americans um, don't really know a lot about the Arab Spring, um, but it, but it's quite complex. You have the tiny Sunni monarchy, which rules Bahrain, and they're backed mm -hmm. by Saudi Arabia. And then you have um, the Shiite majority, which is rumored, I think, with, you know, it's, it's in open source, um, uh, corroborated in open source that it's been, that it's supported by Iran and funded and, and armed by Iran, the, um, the Shiite insurgency. So it's, it's quite complex. Um, it's really almost reminiscent of, you know, the Cold War Vietnam with kind of a proxy war where you have these great powers kind of battling it out in this small theater. Um, right. Yeah, and it's it's almost like a new Cold War, um, but but as a spy, I spent um, a year. My tour was in Baghdad during the war from two thousand four to two thousand five, um, right? And so that was really, I think, what sort of fueled um, me writing about kind of the decisions I had to make um, that had really lasting consequences. I could imagine that uh, every action has to be closely analyzed uh, in yeah. that kind of an environment, because if you do one thing that seems like it's going to be innocuous, you never know what kind of the chain of reaction it's going to have somewhere down the line, right? Exactly. And especially, you know, they call it the fog of war, and it's true. Um, and, you know, you don't, you, you don't have perfect information in a war, mm. far from it. And, um, you try to make the best decisions you can. 
And you know, I, I don't, I don't blame people necessarily for making wrong decisions because I think that's just the nature of war. You, you do what you can. Right. Yeah, and it's probably the nature of conflict and crisis as well. Yeah. You know, it's you have, you have a lot of people now, for example, here in this country, civilians who were uh, Monday morning quarterbacking the COVID nineteen stuff uh, and the the government's reaction to it. But in that fog of war you just mentioned, people sometimes make mistakes. Um, yeah. And everybody's got a plan until they get hit. And the yeah. second that happens, everything else changes. So, yeah. um, and I think that what your thriller does is it talks about the really human aspect of this, the genre and, and, and this kind of a, um, a situation that was happening. A lot of times people will over rely on technology and not talk about the human element of what goes into uh, a an intelligence operation. Isn't that true? A hundred percent. I'm so glad you said that because that's, I consciously avoided using technology in my book um, because right. I think it's really, yeah, thank you for pointing that out and, and, um, and for noticing that because I think it's really easy to let that um, propel your plot, you know, to right. have some kind of like gizmo or device where, oh, look, you know, I know exactly you know, what, what this person's up to or where this person's going, um, it, you know, because of technology. And it's so easy to take shortcuts that way. And it was right. really important to me to um, write a legitimate thriller, a psychological thriller. And, um, and to me, that's much more realistic because people think, you know, people think the agency is really high tech. <laughs> it's, not, right. it's, it's not as high tech as people think it is. I mean, it, like in the movies where you have these big screens and big yeah. and different button, you know, a hundred different buttons and you're, you know, and it's like, they can see in every room in every country. And, you know, that's just not right. Um, no, it isn't. No, and then the the hyper efficient government is a myth, right. and uh, you don't. Right. You, I'm glad you didn't uh, uh, foster that in your book. No, exactly. And and I always, I, you know, I firmly believe too that at its heart, tradecraft is psychological. You know, it's about mm -hmm. outsmarting your opponent, and and you know, it sounds bad maybe, but manipulating. You know, that's that's really the essence of of tradecraft. It's not you know, it's not scaling roofs or, or car right. changes or, you know, swift chops to the neck. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's stuff like that. I mean, it, it makes for a good movie, but it doesn't, yeah. but, it, and, you know, they have their place because they, they're not making documentaries, but, um, you know, so you need to have some drama there, but people don't realize that even though there's a lot of information out there these days, especially a lot of data, the myth of the hyper-prepared government is just, a myth. And uh, totally. it takes very real people doing very real things every day to pull that off. Totally. And to be honest, I mean, even though it is kind of sexy to have cool, you know, technology and, and, and action, I, I actually think it's more interesting um, to, to view conflict in psychological terms. Exactly right. Exactly right. I know in my thrillers, I did have um, a technology network known as Omni, but in, when I was writing it, I made sure that it was never enough. There was always uh -huh. the human element that made the difference. Yeah. So, you know, it was yeah. nice to be able to write about it, but the people who like my stuff have said, you didn't make that a character and it, and it, it did have real people doing things because that's what it ultimately is. I mean, you can see a lot from a satellite and you can see a lot from a drone, but you can't see everything, can you? That's right. And, and someone has to program those, you know, figure out the targets and. Yeah. AI is not going to solve all of the problems. 
It really isn't. You know, it'll help, but it won't solve everyone. Hope not. <laughs> no, let's hope not. Yeah, exactly right. That's a conversation for another one day. But yeah, I mean, as, as a citizen and as a writer, I'm hoping AI exactly. has some limits. Exactly. How did you know this, um, your protagonist, how did you come up with him? And um, I know you said earlier that he has a lot of the same experiences you did during the Arab Spring. So to walk me through your development of that character, what were you trying to accomplish with him? Yeah, in some ways I, you know, I related to him in other ways I didn't. I mean, it's, in some ways he's nothing like me. I mean, he's uh, male and mm -hmm. um, he's, he's a womanizer. He's not a particularly likable character. Um, I, for me, it was important to have a character that represented not just a typical spy, but someone who had been worn down by the profession, someone who right. had, had spent decades manipulating people. And, and, I, and I really believe um, that one of the tolls of espionage is, is not just on the people being manipulated, but on the people doing the manipulating. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it is, it's, a, it's kind of a debilitating process. Um, so it was important to me to have a character that really reflected um, the scars of that life. And, sure. and not to have, you know, someone, I definitely did not want an overly glamorous spy. I mean, that was right. like, the world is full of James Bonds and that's great, right. you know, and drinking their, you know, martinis and with their tuxedos and that's great. But I, you know, the world has plenty of those and I wanted, right. um, you know, I wanted a more realistic spy. That was really, I set out to write the most realistic story with the most realistic protagonist I could. And you know, a right. lot of people ask me why I didn't write a woman because I'm a woman, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. but, but that's really why because I wanted someone realistic, like the most realistic spy I could, and it simply it simply wouldn't have wouldn't have worked as well to to just uh, write about a, a typical spy, um, right? To write a woman, it's just not as realistic. Right. Yeah, and it, it sounded like that you definitely uh, knew what you were talking about, and you had a specific vision for the plot. Uh, how long did it take you to write this kind of a story uh, without even, I know it had to be signed off on probably by the, uh, the government at some point, but how long, what started you around what time, when did you start thinking about becoming a novelist and then um, how long was it until publication? Yeah, I think I had always been drawn to writing, but I just didn't really have the story to tell. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, I, I, I served as a spy and years later, it was those experiences that stayed with me that still haunted me. So um, I think a couple of years after I, I, ultimately I went to Bahrain, um, not as a spy, but I just thought the Arab Spring was so fascinating and kind of the perfect prism for a spy tale. Um, right. So I got back from, the, from Bahrain and that's when I started writing. Um, I started writing in earnest when my son went to school because then I had a couple hours <laughs> during the day <laughs> so <laughs> that was like the first time when he went he went to kindergarten um and I spent I you know it, it's hard to measure because I didn't write during the summers because he was he was not in school right. but um but it took me maybe about um five years maybe three years writing two years editing um mm -hmm. and, as, and as you mentioned I did have to have it cleared by the CIA um, and so, and, and, and people might not realize this, but the CIA's definition of publishing is showing it to anyone. So I couldn't show it to my husband. I couldn't, oh. I couldn't show it to anyone. I wrote in a vacuum for five years. Right. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a long time to have faith in your work because really that's tough. 
It, it is because you're kind of sitting there and you're like, is this the worst book ever? Like, am I wasting five years of my life? <laughs> you know? Right. Right. Wow. Um, that's that part. I did not know. I, uh, that's yeah. interesting. I thought you could, uh, I thought you could show parts of it, but wow. I that's mean, yeah. I think I'm one of the, for a while. I think I'm one of the few people who really, you know, I have a law degree, so I'm like, I'm really stick a stickler for the rules. Like I, I, yes. I, I don't think most people maybe uh, take it quite that seriously, but I was like, I am not showing it to anyone. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, that's, that's the best thing for yourself. Wow. That was, so after you got the clearance and you started showing it around, when was yeah. it, did you get a lot of feedback from people who might not be in the trade and asking, saying, wow, this is good. What kind of feedback did you get from it initially? So from your beta I, yeah. readers. From, I'm sorry, from my- Beta, beta readers. Oh, like, yeah. Um, I, I actually didn't show it to many people. Um, I just, I showed it to my husband and my dad mm -hmm. and, and that was it. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'd spent so much time on it. I, I was determined to, I was like, I spent five years on this thing. I'm, you know, I'm gonna submit it to agents regardless. So- right. I, you know, I, I was flying blind. I had no idea what I was doing. I literally was like looking up agents on the internet. And, um, you know, they say pick an agent who represents authors like you. But I think right. that's, that's harder, that's um, easier said than done because most agents represent a, a variety of authors. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. but, that, but that's more or less what I did. Um, and I, I, I cold called these agents basically, like my spy days. <laughs> like trying to trying to pitch them you know um no but I would send out queries and um you know I was I was lucky I got a great response and um I actually got got multiple offers of of representation and that was that was so encouraging to me um right and I didn't realize at the time how crazy it was for me to just you know cold call these agents and um what what was your experience like getting an agent I wound up getting one through my first agent. I got through a, a referral of a friend of mine uh, and I got him literally, and I'm not exaggerating. I, I got him about a half an hour after I got my first book offer. Oh my so, God. Uh, yeah. So I, I, the publisher emailed me and says, Hey, we're going to publish your book. We want two more. I said, it was a small publisher. I said, fantastic. And then half an hour later, I get an email from the agent saying, Oh, I'll represent you. So oh and they, they, there's no way they knew about each other so I just put those in touch and those two together and the, then it happened um but it's great that you got such a, a fantastic response and then you landed up with a top house once uh, once you did get an agent that's a fantastic Thank ride that must have been a thrill though knowing your five years of work had paid off it, it was amazing I mean it was yeah it, it was amazing I think it, it still hasn't fully hit me <laughs> but no it, it probably won't I mean it's and especially because of the the great reception that this book has gotten and it's going to continue to get I think from now until the, the rest of the year uh that's going to be some validation for you when you when you think back on it and where you were flying blind all the way to full acceptance now yeah totally I mean this is it's a dream I just I it's a dream I mean I can't I still haven't haven't fully grasped it I, it, when when my agent called me to tell me um, I had a book deal, it was during the pandemic, and um, and my son was was at home learning virtually because the school had shut down, and um, 
And I just remember like telling him while I was on the phone, I was like, I got a book deal. And he just jumped on the bed. And <laughs> it's, a, it's such a nice memory for me, like that my son was jumping on the bed. Yeah, I would, there's always going to be that, that lasting memory. And then when you get the books, the arcs, when they come in the mail, that is, that's a fantastic feeling, the, the reveal, yeah. if you will. Yes. Yeah, that's awesome, too. Now, for, for this character, do you envision keeping the protagonist around for a while? Do you envision a series? Or do you think you might be more of a standalone writer? I think this particular book is standalone. Um, I mean, I think in so many ways, it's about the death of a spy. You know, I mean, it's mm -hmm. about him um, making a last attempt to sort of redeem his failed life. And... Um, and so I don't necessarily know that it's conducive to a sequel or a series. Um, I'm, I'm open, I'm considering the idea of a series for my next book. Um, I'm actually, okay. I, I, I'm thinking I'm gonna um, maybe fictionalize and rework my own experiences in, in Baghdad um, for okay. my, my next book. Wow, so. that sounds like it'll be uh, you have plenty of material for a novel. That's fantastic. I, hope, I think so. I hope so. I mean, it's something that, um, you know, I, I am connected to so personally. So I think I could mm -hmm. really, you know, write about it in, in, a, in an authentic way. Sure. Do you have a working title for it yet? Or is that still under wraps? Or an idea when it might come out? Oh, uh, no idea. I haven't really started it. Yet. Okay. So, I That's mean, good. good. You know what, you'll probably get an awful lot of inspiration from the tour that you're on now for, uh, you know, meeting new people and getting feedback on this book. And I'm sure that's going to help you with all of your future work. Hope so. Yeah. I think it will. Now, if people want to keep track of your progress as a writer, uh, you know, on social media, Facebook, things like that, what's the best way they can follow you? So um, I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram. I'm pretty pretty new to both, but I'm um, at isberryauthor, one word. Um, okay. And I'm, I also have a website, isberry.net. Um, and that's, and they, they can sign up on my website if they want to get updates from me. Okay, great. Well, that's always a good way for people to follow what's going to happen. And it, I know there's going to be a lot that they're going to need to keep track of because uh, this book is a, is a winner and I'm sure it's going to lead to more in the future. Thank you. That's so nice. Oh, thank you. No, and, it, and thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. I know my audience learned a lot today and so did I. Um, ladies and gentlemen, this has been another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time, everybody. Take care. You have been listening to Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes with host Terrence McCauley on Authors on the Air Global Radio Network.